Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please enjoy the trailer for the Iron Giant Signature Edition. What are we looking at here, Mr. Manley? This is no meteor. This is something much more serious. Invaders from Mars! Hey there, Scout. Get Manley, you work for the government. I have something for you. Where did you find that? Up at the power station. Hogarth was out there the other night. Really? See anything unusual, Hogarth? No thing unusual, really. So, I guess you're not gonna hurt me, huh? My own giant robot, I am the luckiest kid in America! Where'd he come from? He doesn't remember. He's like a little kid. Little, yeah. <laughs> Bunzai! Ever hear of Sputnik? It's like that giant thing in the woods. We don't know what it can do. What are you talking about? You think this middleman is fun, but who built it? The Russians? The Chinese? Martians? Canadians? I don't care! You are going to tell me about this thing, and we are going to destroy it before it destroys us! We gotta show them you're good. You are what you choose to be. I'm Superman. We must stop it at all costs. Let's get out of here! Run! Ready the attack? My son is out there! We've gotta help him! Hogarth, no! I'm slipping! Ah! Giant? Hogarth. Please welcome this evening's moderator, Primetime Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmaker, Anthony Giacchino. How many people saw the film in theaters this weekend? Or, Yeah, it was great, right? Well, before we meet Brad, the filmmaker behind The Iron Giant, I want to uh, just show you uh, a short teaser for a documentary that I'm doing about the making of The Iron Giant. This is going to introduce Brad in a way that I really couldn't. We want tons of good ideas, and we got, you know, 80 minutes here, or whatever, 74, whatever I had to agree to, uh, to knock everybody out. And, you know, I don't mean, like, cutting every two seconds, like the Disney films that sort of yammer and yammer and, here's the song number, okay, here's an action sequence, you know, it's not that. 
first time I met Brad, he came out of the gate shooting. He wasn't afraid to mix it up. Is it our problem or your problem? He was this cowboy. He's saying, yeah, man, I'm gonna do a different movie and what animation is, it could be really great, but everybody's doing it wrong and together we're gonna make something special, man. I said, I'm signing up with this guy right now. Everyone wanted to know what he was up to and wanted to work with him. People were excited about the Iron Giant, the fact that Brad was finally going to get a feature film off the ground. We were like a Bad News Bears assembly of people. We were seen as rebellious artists. This odd group of people off to the side of the mainstream. We really thought we had made the best animated movie to date audiences would come out in droves to see this movie. We knew this was going to be up for best picture from the Academy. Join me in welcoming Brad Bird, director of The Iron Giant. So I, I like it that you have what could go wrong and then I come out. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Well, first of all, thank you for coming all the way to New York City. I know yeah. we all appreciate that. Big um, Apple. Yeah. yeah, for the launch of yeah, the... Yeah, the Big Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. No, for the launch of the digital release of yes. the signature edition of The Iron Giant. Um, did you see the film in a movie theater last week? I did. Yeah? Yeah, and it was fun. How was it compared to 99? Uh, it was attended. That was, that, was, that was really nice. <laughs> yeah, no, it went really well. Um, um, uh, we've been really gratified by the way it's um, grown in acceptance and, and people know, are starting to know about it in a really nice way. It's strange you say starting to know about it. I mean, this well, I mean, a lot of people still don't, but, but, but every day is, is, you know, it's more every day. So that's fantastic. It was great to see your film back in the theaters. I, uh, yes. I don't know if they're going to be showing it more in the theaters. Hopefully they will. You never know. Right. Um, but, you know, people have projectors at home now, and, and, you know, if you have a really big screen at home, invite a lot of people over, you can have an experience too. Well, tell me then, um, you obviously experienced your first movies in theaters. What was it about that that made you want to become a filmmaker? Or did you know when you wanted to become a filmmaker? No, in fact, um, the, I started drawing at about age three, and the thinking back on it, the you know my drawings weren't different than any other three-year-olds. They were circles and dots for eyes, and you know, uh, straight lines with a squiggle on the end for arms and hands. And but the one thing that was different was they were sequential, right from the very beginning. I would have a series of drawings, and I would show one drawing at a time and tell a story. And years later, I figured out that that was from the very beginning I was trying to do movies. I just didn't know it. Right. That was the way that I had at my disposal that was the closest I could get to making a movie, because I was telling a story and showing images. The Iron Giant is your first feature film. You had had certainly a career, you know, in animation. But um, how did this film in particular come from a book to a musical and then to your version of The Iron Giant? Well, animation is in a different place now than it was in 1999. A, a sort of second renaissance had begun at primarily at Disney. 
and uh, with the musicals of the 80s and 90s, late 80s and 90s, I guess. Uh, and every once I think Lion King happened, every studio suddenly decided that they needed to have a feature animation division. And like any gold rush, there's, there's a lot of kind of ill-advised <laughs> things that happen. Um, so I think that the intention of every studio was to imitate what Disney was doing. And um, that meant musicals and usually based on familiar fairy tales. And uh, we kind of came in a, as a strange reaction than that uh, to Pete... Pete Townsend, who is uh, one of the producers of the film, of The Who, a uh, legendary musician, um, and Des Maganoff brought The Iron Giant to Warners to do as a rock musical, which was very different from the kinds of more Broadway musicals that Disney was doing. And it was it, in development there. I had been working for a company called Turner uh, Feature Animation, which was Ted Turner's company. And uh, I was developing a project called Ray Gun that I still want to make. Um, and they weren't going to make Ray Gun, and then Turner got sold to Warner Brothers. Everything Turner owned, including the Atlanta Braves and Cartoon Network and CNN and the pre-1947 Warner's Film Library and the MGM Film Library, all this stuff. And in with all of that was the caraway seed of the last three months of my contract. And so they, they had a million projects in development at Warner Brothers, and they said, do any of these interest you? And I took three of them off to read, and, and one of them was Iron Giant. And I really liked the book, and I was really taken by it, but I wanted to take it in a different direction, and I pitched that direction to Warner Brothers, and the direction was, what if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun? And that's different from the book. Now, um, Warner Brothers, they were on board with it. They loved your pitch. They, they did, which is... In, in itself, I think back on it, it's kind of amazing because that's not your normal pitch. That's not a, a comfy, you know, little for the kiddies kind of pitch. It's like, it's the Cold War and, you know, what if a gun had a soul? I mean, that's not exactly, you know, top ten, you know, but the fact that they responded to it was really cool. So you come on board... I spoke to, for the film, I spoke to the uh, former head of uh, Warner's feature animation, and he told me that when they were considering you, and I guess it was during the contract negotiations, he had some people in the industry calling him saying, you know, Brad Bird, you got to be careful, you playing with fire, and what could go why, wrong? In, yeah, <laughs> why in the world would he be being told you're playing with fire? Mild-mannered Brad Bird. <laughs> uh... For whatever reason, my reputation was not mild-mannered. Um, uh, I had been in a family that was, uh, I grew up in a family that was very kind of upfront. You were meant to say what you were thinking and you know all of that. And then when I did my first film and I got a mentor at Disney, they, they, without knowing it, they assigned me to the worst mentor they could if they wanted me to behave because Milt Call, who was a brilliant animator, um, was a very outspoken guy. So the kind of the first example I ever saw was somebody who basically said what was on his mind. What they didn't tell me is that telling people what's on your mind doesn't necessarily a good move in the job market. You know, uh, so I went to Disney and 
you know, I was kind of vocal about what I thought, um, you know, the right way to do things. And the stuff that I was saying was just the stuff that the old Disney masters taught me, but people didn't want to hear it from me. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, I got fired by Disney, and, and I was fired out of the two of the first three jobs that I held. And it was kind of for that kind of stuff, kind of being outspoken. I was probably a big pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned being at Disney, so I, I don't know if many people know this, but you showed your first film to Disney when you were 12 years old? 13. 13 years old. And how did that lead you into working with Disney? Um, well, my parents were really cool, and they basically said... You should, when I finished the film, I sent it, I entered it in a couple of contests and it won some awards. And then it was like, now what? And they said, you should send it to the people you admire most. And they said, go to the very top of who you think is the best. And if they say no, which they may very well say, go to the next person that you admire. And if they say no, go to the next person. And so that the first person who says yes will be the best you can do. And so I started at the absolute top of where I thought, you know, and fortunately the very first people said yes, and they invited me in, and, and they were incredibly generous with their, their time, and, and uh, um, Milt was fantastic. I mean, he was kind of an intimidating guy, but, but I thought he was fantastic, and I, I knew his work. I, actually, as a kid, I knew which scenes he had done, and, and they were always, like, fantastic, so... For me, it was like being into acting and getting to work with Marlon Brando or something. It was just amazing. So you've been animating since 12 or 13 years old, 11, I started 12. at 11, yeah. Okay, so I don't know if, um, if this is breaking any sort of animator's code of omerta, but... Um, wow, that's sexy. Uh, <clears throat> I'm liking this animator Our, thing more already. <laughs> I want to show you a, a clip from Iron Giant, uh, one that Brad actually animated. I don't know if this is known or not, but I found this out. Um, it's the coffee scene. I'm going to have some coffee. What do you want, some uh, milk or uh, what, milk? Coffee's fine. <laughs> yeah, I drink it. I'm hip. I don't know. This is espresso, you know? It's like coffeezilla. I said I'm hip. So she moved me up a grade because I wasn't fitting in, so now I'm even more not fitting in. I was getting good grades, you know, like always. So my mom says, you need stimulation. And I go, no, I'm stimulated enough right now. That's for sure. So she goes, uh-uh, you don't have a challenge. You need a challenge. So now I'm challenged, all right? I'm challenged to hold on to my lunch money because of all the big mooses who want to pound me because I'm a shrimpy dork who thinks he's smarter than them. But I don't think I'm smarter. I just do the stupid homework. If everyone else just did the stupid homework, they could move up a grade and get pounded too. Is there any more coffee? Look. It's really none of my business, kid, but um, who cares what these creeps think, you know? They don't decide who you are. You do. You are who you choose to be. So, a little yes. full disclosure there. I only did the scene where he's ranting. Uh, the early, earlier scenes were done by Chris Sove, those beautiful scenes of Dean and getting into it, and also Dean Wellens. Um, so I only did the, that one long shot of him going all over the place. Okay, well... It was ill-advised, by the way. I should not have done that. To do that in the middle of making the film was really stupid. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because 
the animators that I spoke to, the people that I spoke to, were actually very inspired by the fact that you were at the table with them animating. And I, was it your love of animation? Was it because of the tremendous uh, pressure, time pressure you're under? Was it the budget? All of those sound more noble than just being stupid. So I'll go with, with those. Can no, I mean, I, I thought it would be fun. Uh, it's the kind of scene that I wanted to animate, and it, it was fun because I'd written the dialogue and, you know, it was meant to be done at Mach 5, you know, and but what I didn't realize is that because it's so fast, you have to do some drawing on every single frame. You can't hand any of it, I mean, because the lip sync is going at Mach 5, you can't, you have to do the drawing. So every drawing, some part of every drawing I had to do, which was the dumbest thing for 35 feet of animation or whatever it was, that was really not smart. Well, how long would it take to do that? You know, too long. I, should, I, mean, I, was, I actually was like doing another job, <laughs> you know? It was, it was, yeah. But I'm glad I, I have it in the film. It's right. fun. Well, I, I think I wanted to, you know, show everybody that because of that, but I think the central theme of the film is there also, right? Isn't it you are who you choose yeah, to be, De right? Dean says it to Hogarth, and then Hogarth ends up saying it to the giant. That's right. So um, I think most people here are told... Uh, be yourself, you know, and, yeah. and, and how does but you who, are who you choose to be? You don't know who yourself is, though. I mean, there's another, I did, uh, well, there's a line in Incredibles where um, uh, the guy that becomes Syndrome says they keep telling you to be yourself, but which side of yourself is that? You know what I mean? He says something to that effect. Um, uh, for me... Uh, what I was thinking of was that, um, like a guy like Cary Grant was born very poor as a Cockney in, in London, and he decided to be Cary Grant, and he decided to, you know, uh, lose his accent and cultivate the kind of guy he wanted to be, and after a certain amount of time, he became that guy. He chose to be that guy and acted like that guy, and that pretty soon became him. You know what I mean? And he was that guy. But, you know, you, you choose to do certain actions which define who you are. And, you know, all of us have a good side and a side that we're not proud of. And if we act on the side that is positive, um, it becomes who we are. And the fact that we're picking it, um, it makes it especially personal, I think. Because you can choose to act on the better side of yourself, what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. You know, uh, I think that, I mean, that's the thought. It's starting to get very heavy in here. No, all it's right. all right. Uh, but it's important. It's the central, I think, point of the, of the film. Um, if you want to go a little lighter, uh, there's another sure. clip from the film. Sure. Um, Let's go lighter. I, yes, I want to uh, just... Uh, Set this up. There. You remember uh, Hogarth's mother calls, said, I'm going to be late. I have to work late. Uh, yeah, she, he, she, she, he's kind of a latchkey kid. Yeah. And she says, uh, not going to be home for dinner. You know, the drill, uh, no scary movies, lo no late night snacks in bed by 8 o'clock. And he says, come on, who, who are you talking to? It's me. And then cut to, to this. Why, the porpoise can communicate telepathically, Miss Mellon. If we can transplant at least 15% of their brain matter into ours, we may be able to read minds. Mm. Darn. 
a perfectly good brain wasted. Okay. So that's uh, going Again, little... you're cutting to me after a perfectly good brain wasted. <laughs> what are you trying to tell me, man? I'm picking up on you. Well, let me uh, take you back to <laughs> July of 1998 when you were discussing that scene. This is something that uh, we dug up for the documentary. And, um, uh -oh. well, why don't we just I'm already show the afraid. You know, the hand with the Twinkie comes right in front of the screen after we've glimpsed a little bit of a scary movie and injects uh, a can of whipped cream into the Twinkie. And uh, uh, this is known as Turbo Twinkie. It'll be very famous after this movie. You guys are finding out about it early on, though, before the, tra the craze uh, sweeps the nation. Yeah. Well, I actually recommend whoever's doing this to actually get some Twinkies. We have them for sale here in the <laughs> lobby. Uh, and try it, because uh, there's a certain way that it happens. It'd be kind of cool if we could actually caricature the real thing. Twinkie uh, capacity test. Um, now squish it in your hand. Yeah, see, that's what it looks like coming up. Like didn't expand! To just tip it like it this. didn't expand! Yeah, why not? Maybe if I put it in the middle one. That Twinkie's not expand. Oh, yes, uh, it is. Yeah, it one. just did. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yay! <laughs> okay, so who knew uh, that so much work would have to go into a Twinkie scene, right? So um, I was, that's why I was interested in that. I, I just didn't naively or maybe not just didn't know. There's right. so much work that goes into this. That I say something and then a really ill-advised science experiment <laughs> comes out of it. Yeah. Right. But you also said something that you said it would be interesting to, to what did you say, to, to make a caricature of what that... Caricature what? of what it is. I mean, animation really, I mean, the word caricature is often used as in a disparaging way, but, but there is great caricature too. And, you know, like uh, Al Hirschfeld uh, uh, would, would, this, you know, amazing artist who did stuff on the theater and everything for uh, nearly a hundred years here in New York. Uh, when he drew a drawing of somebody, it looked more like them than they did. And it's because he dialed in on what was specific about that individual. And, uh, you know, caricaturing also goes for movement. Um, the way everyone in this room moves a way that is specific to them. And when you're an animator, the, your animation improves the more you dial into what makes people individuals. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Disney did with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was each dwarf was about the same size and had the same proportions, but if you blacked them out and made them silhouettes, you'd still be able to tell which dwarf was sleepy and which dwarf was dopey and which dwarf was dock by the way they moved. And their movement, um, you know, really was personalized. And, and so there's got to, you know, we did it in the scene. Tony Fucilli, who's a brilliant animator, animated that scene of uh, Hogarth putting in the Twinkie and then wiping his face. And, um, you know, he, th it's a caricatured moment. How did you, uh, Hogarth looks like a real, like, like what a real kid looks like at that age. I'm wondering, did, did you have discussions about that? Because there seems to be a tendency to make kids like. Yeah, there's a generic quality. And, and um, one thing that, 
that Milt, uh, who was a brilliant character designer and started with Pinocchio and went all the way through The Rescuers um, as, you know, not only a great animator, but a, a really great designer. But um, he would look at the details, and one of the things that he did was everybody has specific teeth, and very few people caricature teeth. They always tend to make these sort of game show host teeth, you know, where everybody's just like, huh? And actually, it's more personalized than that. And so with Hogarth, we had one tooth is at an angle. One of his two front teeth is at an angle. And that m makes him look a little more like a kid, kind of before braces and stuff, you know? And everybody's, you know, smiles are very personal and, and that kind of thing is, but the, the interesting thing when it's hand drawn is you have to make it so that it's easy for a lot of artists to draw and you have a lot of different people with a lot of different styles and yet the, the assignment is to kind of disappear into the character and bring your own slant to the character but everyone is playing that character. But are you saying that there wasn't just one animator for Hogarth? No, there was a bunch. I mean, uh, you know, you saw the scene that I did. Before that is uh, our scenes that uh, Chris Sauvé did and Dean Wellens did. Um, and both of them are fantastic animators. And they did Ho Hogarth scenes. Uh, Chris Sauvé did a lot of the Dean scenes. Um, Dean did Dean scenes. I mean, everybody kind of worked on everything. And why is that? I mean, do you have the, the feeling that if, if you gave it to one person, the, the character could well, become stale it, in a way? Or no, I mean, there are advantages to doing that, too. You know, Cruella de Vil was only done by Mark Davis, and, and uh, Cruella de Vil is fantastic, you know. Uh, some people believe that's the only way to do it, is to cast people, you know, to one character. But, you know, one of my favorite films when I was a kid was Jungle Book, and Disney had a small group of really great artists and everybody did every character and it's all great animation. You know, what Frank Thomas did with Bagheera is slightly different than what Milt did, but what they did in total uh, is very consistent. The character is consistent. And to me, that's interesting because you're exploring different facets of the same character. And what about the giant uh, himself? Do we have that, um, you know, I just... I mean, I have literally like hundreds of images of the giant and just picked, I think, four of them. Some from before you got on board, some from when you were on board. Maybe we could just take a look at, at them and you could talk about your thinking about the giant and oh, how you okay, decided sure. to finally, you know, say, hey, this is who our giant is going to be. So you can talk. Okay, this is before we got involved. Um, the project had been developed for several years and there were several different approaches. Some were really elaborate, um, but sort of cartoony, but a lot of surface detail, like this. And um, this was starting to be when I got involved. And this is when I got involved. And those are, these are very early concepts, though. So, I mean, you know, you see the pincher claws. This is not, this is before me. Oh, that's this, before you? Yeah, that's before us. Okay. I so think. Just to give it, it might have been early us. I think that, was that not a, like a, a Lou Romano? I don't think it was, no, but no. I think it, it. I think it might be early, early us. But okay. But but ha what was that process like? I mean, what did you want from the giant based well, on what you saw before? And I thought they got a little goofy, and the the trick was how do you keep something simple and metallic looking, 
I'll just say this. There were some designs that were done early where the giant had lips, and the lips actually moved like lips, and he had a tongue. And I was like, look, the whole thing is crazy, but what is the function of a tongue? I mean, I don't get it. I mean, there's barely, you don't really need to have a jaw and have him talk either if you want to get, you know, detailed about it. But a tongue seemed to me to be too far in the direction of making it human. And so we tried to make one piece of metal that, depending on how we tilted it toward camera, could be a frown or a smile or whatever. We tried to have as few controls as possible on the face. We had lids, uh, uh, upper and lower lids, but depending on how we used them, they sometimes functioned as brows. And um, you could just raise the lower lids and it kind of looked like a cheek. And, and yet, it was that very same bunch of minimal controls. So I went to a friend of mine uh, who had worked on um, Batteries Not Included with. He was a brilliant uh, uh, talent, uh, designed, was one of the main designers of Star Wars, uh, the original trilogy, and is now a director and has directed everything from October Sky to Captain America and a whole bunch of stuff. And. Uh, I, you know, I knew the chances of me getting turned down were probably great because he's busy, but uh, I caught him in a good day or something and I asked Joe Johnston to come in and design the giant. And so he did the very first drawings of what I think of as our giant. And then Mark Whiting, uh, our production designer, uh, took that and, and ran with it. And he'd done some really nice drawings before Joe, but he, uh, once Joe kind of got us to me on the in the right you know direction uh, mark uh, and then Steve Markowski who was the key ana animator on the giant uh, iterated further so uh, but Joe really got us off on the the giant giant I don't know if you know this story about Joe but he said that um, when you first asked him to do it he's like yeah I'll work on a bit you know I, you don't have to put me in the credits and he said after he saw the film said, please put me in the credits. <laughs> well, that's you know nice. Um, do you have, um, okay, so I think it's time to open this up to the audience for some questions. Hi, uh, I'm a big fan. Um, my question is, what advice do you have for aspiring filmmakers? And can you tell us anything about Incredibles 2? Uh, so the second question I'll say, uh, not yet. I'm just, I'm working on it. Uh, I'll give it a good shot, I promise you that. Uh, on the first question, what I would recommend that you do, um, it's hard for me to do this in a way that doesn't sound bitter because you guys have so many cool tools that I didn't have when I was uh, <laughs> your age. Um, the fact that um, people basically carry a movie studio in their pocket now and you can have high def images with the new Apple iPhone, it's like four, you have capability of shooting at 4K, which is ridiculous. And you can do stereo sound and you can edit on your phone. I mean, it's ridiculous how, ah, you know. Uh, but, uh, but uh, so I'll just try to stay upbeat and say, you guys have 
amazing tools. They are really democratic. They're available to a lot of people. You can do amazing things with these very simple tools, and they're quite sophisticated. And there are apps that you can do to, to stabilize the image to make it look like Steadicam, so you can like do your Scorsese shots and uh, you know just go to town. Um, the best thing I would say is make films, make them, uh, you know, make the mistakes. It's cheap, you know. Um, all it is is time and energy, and um, study the films that you like and figure out why you like them, and study the films that you don't like and figure out how to fix them. Um, a lot of people stop at just criticizing, and when I went to film school, I saw a lot of people, man, this sucks, and da, 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 but don't let it end there. If you don't like something or you don't like what somebody did with something, take the time just by yourself to think what you would do to fix it, and it, it's kind of like working out um, is for an athlete. You, you kind of think, that how would you have fixed it? And I have some weird fixes for certain movies where I really like the movie, but something I didn't like, and I have a fix. And I don't know if the fix will work, but um, it's important to take that extra step. So that's what I would say. What I'm wondering is, uh, you mentioned how the, the, the tools are really democratic. I'm wondering, how do you, how do you tell the story, uh, and how do you enlist these massive groups, these massive crews, to tell the same story with you? How do you, how do you spread your vision across a crew of that size? Well, um, that's interesting. Um, that's really kind of the director's conundrum, is um, you don't want to tell, you don't want to shut down everybody's creativity. You, you, you have a, when you make a film, you have a lot of people with a lot of different talents that they're bringing to the table. Um, the best analogy I can think of is having an orchestra. Everybody in the orchestra is good at what they do or they wouldn't be in the orchestra. But you don't say, any one of those people could do a solo and it would sound great. But you don't want to say, do whatever you want, because if you have a whole orchestra of people doing what they want, it's, it sounds awful. Um, so you have to find a way to tell them, this is the song that we're singing, but bring yourself to it. And express your individuality, but do it in concert with everyone else. And, and it's like a, a group of birds flying, where they, they have complete freedom, and yet there's, there's a, a singular movement. And it grows, and they expand and contract. So there is individuality, but it's all going in one direction. So I think that that's one of the, I don't know how you do it. Uh, Everyone, you have to be a little bit of a psychiatrist. Everyone brings their own stuff every day, and some people have bad days and fights, and, and some people are a little lazy, and some people are, are overthink, and you just have to kind of play it individually, you know, like you would with um, anything. Um, so um, I think it's that. Um, that's the shortest way I can answer that. There's a really long answer, but we don't have time for it. Hi. Uh also a huge fan. Um, your movies seem to be a little bit unorthodox. You just mentioned that The Iron Giant was a difficult story to sell in retrospect. I mean, even though you accomplished that, The Incredibles, in terms of technology, you did things that were unbelievable, hair, fabric. How do you continue to challenge yourself? How do you accomplish what you've accomplished? And then for your own personal development, continue to set the bar higher for yourself? Well, I think maybe it, the simplest way to put it is it's good to be a little bit scared uh, uh, you know I, I did um, when I was in high school I did theater and I remember 
getting ready to go on stage. And we had a big theater in our high school. It was like a, you know, a lot of, it was big. It had a balcony. And um, so it was intimidating to step out. And always before, right before you went on, you would just feel ill. You'd feel like you couldn't remember your lines. I, I should have read this before. And then you step out. And the first minute, you're just like, oh, my God, kill me now. And then you kind of get used to it and you get into it and then the audience starts reacting and you kind of start liking the way they're reacting and it starts to be really fun. So I think that when I pick a project that, that I'm interested in, it's usually something that scares me a little bit and um, that I'm not quite sure I can do. And that way I'm on my toes and I'm trying my, I'm always gonna try my best, but if you are a little bit frightened, I think maybe it brings out something special. Hi. Um, Hi. First of all, I wanted to say when the Iron Giant came out, um, I was just starting to get into animation school and it was one of my, a very good inspiration for me. And I've been an animator for more than 11 years oh, now. So thank you for that. Wayne. And um, yeah, so come it, on, it give was, it up. <laughs> it was yeah. um, it was a great inspiration to me as, a, as an animator, as a creative person, so thank you for that. Uh, the, the, the other question I have is, uh, would you ever go back to do a 2D animated film if you wanted to, and or yeah, if you think sure. about it? Yes. Yes? Yes. Right. <laughs> um, I think that, um, you know, obviously I enjoy uh, 3D films. I'm doing a sequel to Incredibles, as somebody mentioned up there. Um, uh, so I, I love all those tools that... John Lasseter and the geniuses at Pixar kind of came up with. Um, but I, I think there's a beauty to hand-drawn animation and a simplicity to it and um, or an organic quality to it that I, that I love. And it's an itch that doesn't get scratched by any other means. And um, uh, I, th I think that um, studios tend to follow whatever they believe is a trend. And because hand-drawn animated features are e either if they're really inventive subjects, they usually have very small budgets and tight schedules and, and can't really do the elaborate visuals. And if they have the longer schedules and the big budgets, they tend to do fairy tales. And so no one uh, has really taken Disney quality and applied it in really unusual directions. And um, so I, I tend, I, I still believe that it's viable as an art form. Um, and people, I think, confuse the fact that nobody has made a, a matrix in animation um, with thinking that hand-drawn animation is an antiquated art form and can't do anything cool anymore. And I just don't agree with that at all. And I think my ideal thing would be, my ideal world would be one where uh, clay animation is done, you know, Henry Selleck um, puppet animation is done, uh, hand-drawn animation is done, and CG animation is done, and all of these things, and combinations therein are just used as tools to tell stories. How do you, as an artist, feel that you're able to express yourself to the best of your ability while also pleasing the people that are giving you money to do so? Um, I think that you... Uh, you know, if you start to get too logical about the assignment of, you know, w what you're supposed to do as a filmmaker, you know, if you think about it really logically, what you're supposed to do is, from a business level, is guess what everyone, regardless of their age, religion, race, creed, 
is going to like two years from now. You'll just go insane. You'll just curl up into a ball and start babbling. Uh, um, but you can't think of it that way. And I don't think you can think about what's going to make the studio happy. I think you have to th just go, what do I want to see in a movie theater? And then it becomes more simple. And you just hope that the studio also wants to see that film and that ultimately the audience will want to see that film. I think that that's the only way you can approach it. I think that if you start second-guessing a bunch of other people, you're just going to be led astray because you can't know what everyone would like. And, you know, um, what did they say about uh, a platypus is, is a creature designed by committee or something? Um, I think that committee filmmaking never works out. Hey, Brad, it's Moroni Hi. Taylor. Hey, man. <laughs> Good he to worked see you. on the film. I did. I brought some friends yeah. from Blue Sky. Moroni Taylor, me. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. You did something really cool on the film when we were storyboarding. You brought in Bill Pete. And yeah. I thought maybe you could the tell. The best. The best. The best. The very best. I thought I was wondering if you could tell the audience a little bit about that. I found it really inspiring and cool that he came in. Well, um, because I met. Um, these Disney masters when I was a kid, I have a, you know, Hollywood is often accused of having ageism where once you get to a certain age, no one is interested in hiring you because you're not hip or whatever. And I have exactly the opposite viewpoint. I feel like the, the uh, craftsmen that come before you are, I revere them. I love listening to them. I love asking questions of them. I like challenging them with things that, that I haven't been able to figure out and they always have amazing things to say. Um, and when we were making the film, to me, the ultimate story man is Bill Pete. He's the only guy that, that you know, I, mean, I guess Miyazaki does this as well. Um, but he, he's the only Disney guy that has storyboarded an entire film by himself and the movie 101 Dalmatians is pretty much exactly what he storyboarded. And uh, he was a legendary story guy and we, he was still alive when we did the film and we had him come over and we named our story room after him and had a drawing that he had done of himself in Disney days and he's really pissed off looking and grumpy and he's got his coffee cup and, and I related to that too, you know. <laughs> just That's what hard work looks like. So he was just an inspiration and I thought he would be good to have him come around and remind everybody what it's like to, to really, you know, kick it up a notch. Yeah. All right, my big hey. question is a lot of your films are very optimistic and that's always really refreshing. That's the one thing I always really like. But what's the okay. one thing that keeps you really happy in this dark, depressing world we live in? And like what gives you hope and kind of <laughs> wow. put that into the put that into the filmmaking? Is it only it's dark and optimistic. depressing? We're here. This is warm. It's we've got cool products well, what out gives there. You hope? Beautiful day in New York. What gives um, you hope? What gives me hope is hope itself. I mean, I think that um, uh, when things get really dire, um, people actually rally and surprise you. And, you know, I mean, this town is, uh, is an example. I mean, look at, uh, d you know, uh, September 11th. I mean, that was an, an absolutely horrible event created by the very lowest of human nature. And how did people respond to it? They, the very best of human nature just popped up out of everyday people going about their day. Suddenly were in the position to, you know, really um, find that 
best part of themselves and rise to the occasion, and that's what people did all over the town, spontaneously. And um, so I believe in that. I know that's in everyone. And, um, you know, it's like Tomorrowland. It's like, you know, uh, which wolf wins, you know, uh, the, the whatever wolf you feed. And if we feed that side of ourselves, you know, we're, the world is going to get better. I don't, I don't, we shape the future. Every, every one of us, in some small way, shapes what tomorrow will be. And if we start giving up on it and believing that we have no effect on it, then it will be lousy. But if we say that we can affect it and we think about it and think what the best thing to do is, that future will come too. So I believe in that better thing. It's, it's just, I don't know. That's just, that's just me. I don't know. It sounds like I should go into a song somehow. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for coming uh, out tonight. And uh, write to Warner Brothers. Let's get this in the theaters more, you right? You said it, not me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Right. Thank you. Thanks, sir. Thank you, thank you.